to the Unknotted, a podcast that unknots foreign affairs and politics. I'm Laura. And I'm Maxim. Today, we are pleased to present to you Edward Lucas, who was a formerly senior editor at The Economist. He is now a uh, senior fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis, non-resident fellow, let me clarify that. And uh, also, he is the columnist in The Times and also... Postimes. Oh, Postimes, yeah. <laughs> so more Estonian people are familiar with Postimes. But let's start with the real thing, why we're here, why we're talking with Mr. Edward Lucas. So, hello, Edward. Hello, Tere. Yes. (laughs) Nice to talk to you. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you. Let's uh, start with the Poland border crisis. Heavy topics first. Uh, I would start from the beginning. In your many interviews, you have always brought out the fact that the West has failed for many years to work out a united strategy for Poland and Baltic states uh, against Russia. So if you now look at the situation that is going on in Poland, uh, where immigrants are being used as a war weapon, then how much of the crisis could have been alleviated, even if we could do something, and how much better the Poland uh, could have been prepared for the crisis? How do you see all of this? I think that Russia has a very well-developed strategy of opportunistic exploitation of difficulties um, that the West has. Um, It exploits our internal divisions and it also exploits external factors. And we have a a long-term problem with migration from countries that are poor, hit by climate change, hit by bad government, hit by war. There's millions of refugees, most of them in countries next door to these places, Lebanon, Turkey, places like that, where they number in the millions, not the thousands we've seen on the border. But Putin sees that, and he also sees that we in the, the West, and particularly in the European Union, don't really have a migration strategy. We have um, politicians who hunt the headlines and want to say, I'm being tough, I'm defending my country against illegal migration. And, and that's, in, in a sense, is a good thing to do. A country needs to have borders. It's almost the definition of a, of a country is that it controls its, its borders. Um, but Putin exploits that, and, and Lukashenko exploits that too. And we don't know exactly whether this was Lukashenko's idea tolerated by Putin or whether Putin, who did it first, let's remember, in 2014-2015 when he was shipping migrants to the Finnish and Norwegian border, whether he said to Lukashenko, why don't you do this? But the fact is it's happening and it's revealed our weakness. It's shown that we don't have a European strategy. We don't really have European solidarity with Lithuania and with Poland and with Latvia, which are on the front line of this. And while we are wiggling and squiggling and and looking really weak and stupid, Putin is laughing. That sounds nice. Uh, I think that uh, it is interesting that you brought out the fact that uh, even if uh, the uh, Norway and Finland had a problem with immigrants, the Putin was the one who uh, Im- like imported uh, these immigrants there. So how, what did it do to these countries like uh, then when it happened? Uh, why was Putin doing this? Well, Putin, uh, there's a good research paper by this, uh, by the mm-hmm. OSW in Warsaw on this, um, which argues, I think convincingly, that Putin wanted to break the diplomatic blockade imposed after the um, attack on Ukraine in 2014. And by shipping the uh, migrants to the Finnish border, he was able to persuade Finland to start to restart its regular bilateral dialogue with Russia, and that took him out of the deep diplomatic deep freeze. 
And so he got, and the, the, the Finns would contest this, I know, and say that it's good to talk to Russia anyway. But the fact is that before he did this thing, um, nobody was talking to him, and afterwards Finland was. And I think he also got some small concessions to the Norwegians as well. And then he stopped. Do you think we should revise that situation again and look at what's been happening with Norway and Finland? Because people see uh, the Belarus migrant crisis right now as a completely separate issue. Because in none of the coverage of the Belarus migrant crisis, I've seen that someone has mentioned that this has happened before to Finland and Norway. Mm -hmm. Do you think it is something we should connect it to? Do you think we should learn our lessons from what has happened before? Or is it a completely new issue? Well, I mean, I, I've connected it in my, in my coverage. I wrote a big piece for the Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago, um, making exact, exactly this point. But I think you know, you've put your finger on a, a, a very deep problem, which is that we have a very short-term memory. Mm -hmm. And so we are constantly thinking, why is this new thing happening with Russia? And we invent new words. We talk about fake news and hybrid warfare and these sort of new terminology because we think we're dealing with a new phenomenon, but we're not. Um, Russia's tactics have very deep roots in Soviet-era active measures and uh, Russia's approach to the outside world has deep roots in the Soviet Union's approach to the outside mm -hmm. world and before that the Tsarist Empire's approach to the outside world so before we start thinking something's new we should look back and try and understand what's happened in history and whether that's a, a guide for us and we tend not to do that in this ahistorical age mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what, how do you see that uh, if not right now everything that is going on with Lithuania and Poland how can and how should NATO and the EU as a political institution help Poland? Can they? Well, I think there's lots of things we can do, and in the end, no one's stopping us doing them. It's our own weakness and indecision, and this is very different from China, where China is seriously strong. We have a real problem that China has a technological edge, it has economic clout, it has real military capabilities, and this is a if you like, is a sort of first-degree problem. And Russia is fundamentally a secondary problem. Russia is not economically very strong. It has an economy between the size of Italy or Germany, depending on how you measure it, but in that sort of region. And Europe, just the European Union, let alone NATO, is much bigger and richer than Russia. And it's much, much bigger than Belarus. And so it's, it's interesting and, and rather upsetting that the country of, you know, take Belarus of 10 million people with an economy about the size of, of Ireland is able to um, make the European Union look so weak. And we must see this as a European um, problem. It's not the Polish border that's under attack, it's the European border that's under attack. Um, I think that the, I mean, if, if I was in charge, my response would have three elements. One would be a very strong humanitarian response, because these are, we talk just about migrants as if it's a sort of abstract category. Every one of them is people, and particularly for Poles and Lithuanians and Latvians who've known what it's like to be refugees in living memory, escaping whether it's from the Nazis or from the Soviets, enduring all the humiliation and uncertainty of um, trying to find uh, life in a new country and then building your um, you know, new future there. We should be particularly sympathetic to these people. So I would like a strong humanitarian response, um, whether we deliver that inside Belarus through the United Nations or the ICRC mm -hmm. and what we do. But, we, but some people will cross the border and even though they've crossed illegally, they must be decently treated. That's very important for mm -hmm. our own self-respect. We also need to have a strengthen the physical 
border. Um, I think that's important, and to some extent we can make the border a deterrent to the... Um, and it's, if it's not easy to cross, that to some extent um, makes the... Um, business model of the people smugglers weaker. But we can also attack the business model of the people smugglers by going after the airlines, for example. We say, if you are shipping migrants into Belarus, your airline will never land in a European capital again. You know, we can really hit these um, charter flights. And, you know, this is a business, fundamentally, and mm-hmm. we can attack it as a business. We can put sanctions on the people involved and say, you're involved in people, people smuggling, that's a crime, and you, and maybe also your family, can never come to the West again. That's a big mm-hmm. deterrent. We can also put pressure on, um, on Putin, and I think it's extraordinary that we are accepting Nord Stream 2 and its certification at the same time as Putin's attack dog, as one might call Lukashenko, is causing us serious damage. And we should be saying to Putin, no, you, know, you need us far more than we need you. We can accept, we're rich, we can accept high gas prices for a bit. Your economy can't survive without energy exports. So, you know, don't think you're bullying us. We, ha- we have the ability to cause you serious problems, and let's do it. It is so interesting that if we listen to your interviews, you always said that, yes, the biggest difference between the EU and Russia is that the, the West cannot even think about the economic downside when the economy isn't growing that much anymore. But the Russia doesn't care. They can give here 100 million, then there, uh, maybe 10 million, because they, they don't care what the people think because they have this kind of power. But how can we then like pressure them? Because why the the main reasons I think the West isn't doing that because we just don't want to cause any economic damages to us. But well, you're absolutely right. And there are three things that we are unable to do that Putin is able to do. One is accept economic pain, and Putin's mm-hmm. repeatedly accepted economic pain um, for Russia. And he said to the Russians, "You know what? It's worth it. We got back Crimea. We have." You know, put Georgia in its place. They are quite happy to take mm-hmm. economic hits for the glory of Russia. And as you say, our politicians are terrified of anything that affects jobs or wages or means higher prices or um, lowers the rate of GDP growth. So that's one thing. The second thing is Putin's willing to be really decisive. Mm-hmm. People come to him with an idea. He says, good idea or bad idea. Or maybe they do the idea anyway. And he says, either this is working, keep it going, or I don't like it, stop it. Um, but there's a kind of ability to make decisions, often quite bad decisions, I would argue, from a Russian point of view. But he's decisive. And when you look around Europe, we don't have a decisive commission. We have some good commissioners, like Viera Jourova, for example, I would mm. mention. Um, but we don't have a decisive commission. And when you look around our national governments, there are very few governments where you can say this is a strong, united, decisive government doing the right thing. You've maybe got Poland and Hungary, which are decisive in a bad way. But you know, the, perhaps the strongest governments in Europe now are Greece, a perennial basket case, but now very well run by Mr. Mitsotakis. Italy, good for now under Draghi. Lithuania, good, strong government, doing decisive things. Maybe you could put Estonia in the same category. But you know, look elsewhere. Sweden, no. Germany. How do you characterize strong government? Well, I see a government that's willing to be decisive, that's willing to say, hey, here's an opportunity, let's take it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we, what you see, for example, I mean, in Sweden at the moment is you know, yet another failed government. It's run very well, mm-hmm. Sweden, by its bureaucrats. And all these countries continue. You know, the lights stay on and the police go out and catch criminals yeah, and yeah. so on. But in terms of political initiative, Putin takes political initiatives and Europe doesn't. Mm-hmm. And the third thing, which is really important, is Putin's willing to lie. He's willing to lie absolutely brazenly. I have no plans to attack Ukraine, he says. I have no plans. Russia's never invaded anyone. His regime is based 
on crimes and lies. Past crimes, current crimes, and lies all the time. And we don't lie, we, we tell the truth. And the worst is, when he lies, we, we don't really believe him, but we pretend to believe him because we're embarrassed to call him out as a liar. And those are the three great sources mm-hmm. of our weakness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good that you mentioned Ukraine because uh, the chief of Ukrainian intelligence has said that based on their sources, Russia w- will attack in January. On Monday, the CIA has also said that there are some very worrying developments on the Russian-Ukrainian border. Do you think it's just a show of force or some sort of a provocation? Or should we be really worried about what's going to happen soon? Well, I think that with, with, it's a bit like if you have a dog and it's showing its teeth and growling and behaving aggressively. And you say, yeah, is it going to bite me? Well, that partly depends on what I do. It partly depends on what the dog's owners do. It partly depends on me. There may be an element of random chance. But I should already be taking it very seriously. Yeah. You know, you say to the owner, keep your dog under control. Maybe you um, put a muzzle on it. Maybe you say, um, you get a stick and get ready to defend yourself. But I think this idea that we are entirely passive and we're sitting here wondering, is Russia going to be nice and back off? Or is Russia going to be nasty? And, you know, oh my goodness, what do we do? We chew our fingernails. This is ridiculous. We should be saying to Putin, be very clear. We already don't like this. We are already planning, um, maybe even implementing Um, sanctions. I mean, I would love it if the new German government would say, until your troops leave the border and until you start pumping gas through Ukraine again, there's no chance we're going to certify Nord Stream. We may nationalise it, but we're not going to certify it. And we have the ability to do stuff, but we don't. And so Putin just, I mean, he he moves tanks to the border and we shiver. We shiver like people, you know, frightened by a fierce dog. And we should be saying, you know, you know what, we can shoot your dog if necessary. We will, we will defend ourselves and we will punish you for this. But we don't. And mm-hmm. we leave the Ukrainians. Remember, thousands of Ukrainians are dead and tens of thousands of Ukrainians, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians have had their lives ruined or their living standards lowered and they're having much less... Um, yeah, their lives are worse because of our cowardice and indecision. Our mistakes aren't just our mistakes. They're paid for in blood and chiefly in other people's blood. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, but about more like uh, I I think what is really like baffling is the intelligence systems, even like both Russia and China. That even uh, as previously said, even if if uh, Russia doesn't have that kind of budget, they still manage to impact the West so much uh, with their uh, I don't know uh, fake news and all that stuff. But I want to ask more about like China, like even if we take into account how like Snowden's operations leaked the U.S. intelligence uh, uh, into the wide world, then then how uh, how much access does China have into using that kind of intelligence? Well, I think China is doing things on a far bigger scale mm-hmm. than Russia. I mean, I've spent my life worrying about Russia, really, but I should, probably should have worried about China more, and. There's several things that are really worrying. One is um, that China has real economic power. Yeah, we, are, we, we can do without, if we have to, we can do without Russian energy. We can't do without Chinese manufacturing. There's a, it's deeply integrated into the world economy. It borrows huge amounts of um, American money, buying American government debt. And it's deep, it, there's a kind of level of, of integration and sophistication about the Chinese economy, which is quite different. From Russia. So that's one big problem. Secondly is the technological advances. They have advances in quantum cryptography, which could mean that they maybe 
or really can basically read any secret that we have encrypted using the existing encryption technology. We're probably behind on that. Um, they are ahead on AI, and they're particularly ahead on their integration of big data and AI to, to understand the patterns of behaviour in big populations. They've trialled this in occupied East Turkestan, the um, province that they call Xinjiang in Chinese, but we see them stealing huge amounts of data in the West. They steal hotel reservation data, they steal airline booking data, they steal credit rating and credit reference data, they steal passport data, they steal security clearance data. And they're, they're putting this together and getting a, in probably a much clearer picture of our, how our society works than we have ourselves. So this is deep cyber penetration, intelligence, cyber espionage into aspects of our society that aren't necessarily secret, but are very useful for their political decision-making. And we find that very hard to cope with. We don't defend and we don't know how to attack. They've also got what I call hegemonic discourse control. They try to have a hegemonic control over the way we discuss China. And that affects our universities, our publishing, our media, um, our our public life. So, for example, just down the road from here, when Xi Jinping visited Britain, two protesters tried to hold up A4 signs um, on, again, on his human rights record, and they were arrested under anti-terrorism laws. Um, and their apartments were searched, their computers were confiscated because we didn't want to offend the Chinese. We have seven universities just round here in central London in the constituency, which I'm trying to to trying to win. Every one of them has a serious problem with Chinese influence. So at LSE, just over the road here, they put up a sculpture which showed Taiwan in a different colour from mainland China. And the Chinese complained like mad to try and have the sculpture put down. We have attempts to control the way um, Chinese history and Chinese politics is taught. We have way um, effect, we have people putting pressure on universities saying, if you do this, you won't get any more Chinese students. So this is deep pressure inside our society. And Russia couldn't do that. You can't imagine Russian students at King's or at LSE or at UCL being organised enough really to campaign for anything, let alone to do it on behalf of the embassy. If you did find the Russians there, half of them would say, we don't like Putin, why should we do what? Whereas China is able to say, we can produce a thousand Chinese students like that who are going to um, do, do what they're told because they're worried about what happens to their relatives back, back home. This is particularly evident in Canada and in Australia, but it's happening here too. And we should be really worried about this mm. stuff. So it's on a quite deep, it goes deep into the way our society works. Yeah, because you don't often see different embassies, for example, Russian embassy mm -hmm. posting memos about some journalists who they claim have made fake uh, claims in the in their articles but this is what china does uh do chinese and russian playbooks uh, in a sense differ in any other way as well well they are very different because they come I and mean, there's there's overlap they both like sort of anti-western um the, the the idea that the united states is a hypocritical bully and that the west is falling apart you see that in both um in both uh um, sets of both narratives. Uh, the both Russia and China have promoted, used the pandemic to promote their vaccine diplomacy, and said the West is um, not helping poor countries, and you know, we are giving our Sputnik or um, Sinopharm vaccine. So they've they've had some benefit on on that. Um, the 
China exploits its diaspora far more effectively than Russia does. Um, though we see it a bit, you know, Russia exploits the diaspora in Germany, for example, the so-called Russlandsdeutsch um, have a, a, a bit of a political factor there, but not, 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 nothing, nothing compared with the way China uses its diaspora in, say, Canada or, or Australia. The um, economic power is um, obviously much greater for, for China, but Russia tends to instrumentalise it more, so we don't see um, the Russia quite crudely uses the gas weapon. Um, China, on the whole, tries to be a reliable partner, but we've seen China now trying to put sanctions on Lithuania and trying mm-hmm. to hit the Lithuanian mm-hmm. supply chain. Um, so I'd say it's like um, they're cousins rather than siblings, um, and, and they're not allies. This is an old-fashioned great power partnership where they have some clear common interests which they pursue, but they also, to some extent, compete and they don't particularly like each other. Mm-hmm. Do you think Russia and China are succeeding uh, in the world in Western democracy that much because they target all the resources towards one adversary, which is the West, but the West has to disperse the resources between Russia, China, Iran, North Korea and many other countries trying to fight uh, against their influence? Well, I think I mean, Russia is, has gone from being a one-trick pony to being back in lots of places and I'm surprised about that. I, I, I was not expecting Russia to get back into the Middle East. And I was certainly not expecting Russia to get back into Africa. And when I saw it happening, I started raising the alarm about it. And people were very sceptical. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this you know, autocracy in a box toolkit that you see with the Wagner Group, where you get a mixture of propaganda, cyber tricks, you know, physical intimidation, military mm-hmm. support... Um, diplomatic protection is quite a potent offering and the Russians are pushing that hard in, in Africa and the Chinese are also pushing their things in Africa, mm-hmm. um, infrastructure which is to put mildly not a great Russian um, strong point mm-hmm. um, the digital yuan the idea of a, a blockchain um, currency that the United States can't affect as a substitute for the dollar, so they're adv- advancing in Africa, China's doing well in Latin America Russia also has its connections with um, Venezuela, mm-hmm. Iran also doing something. So I think there's a kind of matrix that all these hostile countries are doing different bad stuff in different places. Mm-hmm. And But you're right that the West doesn't have an overarching strategic approach. And I remember during the Cold War, which I'm old enough to remember, the West, we every single place in the world, every international organisation, every from Antarctica to the Arctic, we were always thinking, what's the Soviet bloc up to? Mm-hmm. And it could be a you know, UN body dealing with, you know, telecom standards or radio frequencies or food, but there would always be the Russians or the Soviets, as they were then, are trying to get a certain number of places under a certain number of committees and get a certain number of jobs we have to push back mm-hmm. can we and there was always this constant fight going on we gave that up we just stopped when? why? in the 90s because we 90s. were complete because we said Russia's a democracy and China is into hide and bide so we don't believe there's real competition and yeah let's integrate but what, what lead to that when we go down in like history what lead to that that we said that okay I think that we should like, be more friendly with like China and Russia because right now uh, I would say that uh, in Estonia I also do a debating team right now we have this kind of topic where we say say that the uh, the proposition should say that uh, the EU should 
stopped uh, member countries uh, from doing uh, cooperation with China. If I say that, then you, you said that also, uh, if, if, if we want to do that, then uh, how could we like... Um... Well, we need to be very clear that the EU at 27 can negotiate eyeball to eyeball with China. Mm-hmm. The EU is a really serious lump of political and economic mm-hmm. power, particularly if we added Britain, I'm sorry we're not members anymore, and particularly if we add in the Japanese or the Americans or the Australians. You know, once the West unites, we can really talk to the Chinese hard. And, for, and we've seen a bit of this with Huawei. The, the, the mm-hmm. Chinese were pushing ahead country by country with Huawei, saying it's the best technology there is and there's no alternative and it's cheap and you can have it now. And country after country was saying no. Mm-hmm. And the Americans said, no, enough. And they started pushing back and now Huawei's toast. So we can, we can do this if we want. Um, we need American leadership, but the Americans can't do it on their own. They need European help. Mm-hmm. And if we, as European countries, say, look, we don't like the 17 plus 1, now 16 plus 1. Yes. We don't like Chinese infrastructure projects. Mm-hmm. If you want to talk to us, talk to us at 27. But don't try and do side deals with the French or the Germans or the Hungarians or whatever. And, and we can make life difficult for countries that do it. We can say, like we did with South Stream, mm-hmm. we said if, to the Hungarians, if you do South Stream, um, it won't have, and the Italians, we said as well, it won't have certification to sell its gas legally in the EU. And suddenly mm-hmm. all the investors went, what, 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 South Stream? No, not at all, mm-hmm. no, we're going to do that. Mm-hmm. So we can do that. We have immense power as regulators. Yes. We just need to exercise it. But you also said uh, before that uh, Chinese manufacturing is like essential for Europe. But what about like India, Africa? Why aren't we putting like more resources into these other like third world countries where we could like build something if China is that kind of big an, an actor and deal then why we don't do that if we could like maybe uh, lower the Chinese pressure? Yeah, we should have done this 30. I mean, it's, isn't it interesting? We don't have an American company that does 5G. It is we, very interesting. Yeah, yeah we have no, Nokia, Nokia and Ericsson, although they are both actually quite integrated with China. Mm-hmm. We don't really have an independent nuclear power, proper you know, Western nuclear power company that can really build nuclear power stations effectively. The sort of South Korea, Westinghouse is actually quite in with Russia. Yeah, but we, nobody made us have this weakness. We just let it develop. And we should have said back in the 90s, we need to think about the resilience of our supply chain. We need to think about chips. Okay, Taiwan, brilliant at chips, but that's only Taiwan. Let's encourage the Taiwanese company to build chip fabrics elsewhere. We need to think about rare earths, these metals which you mm-hmm. make actually at Silomay in Estonia. Or you refine them there, but we are rare earth supply chain became mm-hmm. very China dependent. Mm-hmm. We need to think about all these advanced technologies, new materials, um, AI, which I mentioned already, quantum technology. These are strategic things which during the Cold War we made absolutely sure that we mm-hmm. wouldn't be dependent on Russian or Soviet technology. Mm-hmm. But we need to think strategically, and we can do this as the West. I think the great tragedy was that in the Obama administration, we didn't push ahead with TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, mm-hmm. and that the Trump administration cancelled the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. If we got those in place 15 years ago, we would then have a big lump of economic governance that would unite a billion people and $40 trillion, um, a $40 trillion GDP. Mm-hmm. And that would be perhaps not as big as China in population terms, but you could add other countries onto it, and you'd very soon be a case where you, you could say to the Chinese, we're the same size of your population, we are three times the size of you in economy. 
And these are the rules of the world economy. These are the rules on data, these are the rules on privacy, mm -hmm. these are the rules on AI. And we're happy to negotiate with you, but you cannot dictate them. What we've allowed is for basically China to have de facto the initiative about the way the world is going to be run in the next century. Mm -hmm. And that's really scary. Mm -hmm. So it is the question of power then. But what would you say are the essential elements of power? Then you say technology, data, looking for the future initiative. But uh, when, while the China, because they were like the underdog, like most of the 20th century, then why the West uh, started like resting, uh, didn't like... Uh, deal with future or um, why we, we decided that, the, that is, it is not that important? Well, I think we were greedy and naive and complacent. And in a way, when we won the Cold War, we just gave up everything. Um, we said, that's it. You know, the world is now safe for democracy. Let's get on making money. And I do think that greed is ultimately the Achilles heel of the West. And I wrote this in the new Cold War in mm -hmm. 2007, published in 2008. If you think that only money matters... You're defenceless when people attack you using money. And this, I think, was the fundamental problem we made in the 1990s, that everybody said, now we can get rich. And we saw the privatisation of all sorts of government departments, you know, the, you know, the contractorization, the use of... Everybody who was in government was saying, I'm only in government for as long as I need to, then I'll go out to the private sector and make, mm -hmm. and, and make money. And the private sector said, government's job is to get out of the way and help us make money. And I'm, you know, I'm a strong believer in free markets. I want people to get, to get rich and rich and you know, wealth and prosperity, the basis for all sorts of other things that are very important. But that can't be the ultimate goal. And we let that become the ultimate goal. And, and the Russians and the Chinese spotted that. And you know, Lenin said, give the capitalists enough rope and they'll hang themselves. And he was right. <laughs> Yeah. I think you mentioned several times today that the idea that if the West unites, we'll tackle Russia and China better. Why hasn't West united? Well, I think Russia's been very good at playing divide and rule. And they love saying to European countries, look, I know the European Union says this, but wouldn't you like that? And they play it with, you know, <clears throat> even inside the Baltic states, usually there's one one of the three which is a bit of a in the naughty corner, and one of the three which is a bit of a getting a nice deal with Russia, and they try and rotate that round. And we've seen plenty of examples of, but even Baltic prime ministers who think I've I've got a chance of a special relationship with, um, you know, if I'm nice to the Russians, they'll be nice to me, and I'll get more votes, and my people will be happy, and then I'll get re-elected. And you can see why politicians think that, but it's true on a European scale as well. With, German politicians, you know, thinking I'm doing... Uh, um, and also politicians are very arrogant, and I mm -hmm. say this as a politician, and they think I'm special, I have a fantastic personality, I have great in insights. If only I was in charge of dealing with Putin, I would be able to keep the country safe and make us more prosperous, and it'd be win-win. And you see this again and again, particularly mm -hmm. new politicians, where they come in, they think... And the Russians always say, oh, thank goodness, at last we have someone to understand, someone with vision, mm -hmm. um, someone with, with, with real personality. Please, come to, come to Moscow, I'm sure we can understand each other. And then the politician comes in, and you saw that. You see this you know, with Mogherini, we see it with Burrell, saw it with new NATO secretary-generals, we've seen it with prime ministers and presidents, and they go to Moscow, and they give away stuff, and the Russians say, very nice, have a vodka, this is very good. And then... After a bit, they think, ah, oh, that didn't work out so well. And they come out... Come, and yeah, I mean, Hillary Clinton's a good example. She, with the reset, I mean, boy, was that a mistake. The new Obama comes in, thinks he can deal with Putin, and at the end, they're covered with scar tissue. They've been bitten on 
all over the place. And now Hillary Clinton is probably the biggest Russia hawk in America because she's really experienced what happens when you try and be nice to the Russians. But then it happens again. I think the Biden administration is making the same mistake now. But what is the real situation that happened to Hillary Clinton while dealing with Russia? Like, what is the example that you brought out that he is the Russian hawk? Well, she tried the reset, which was to take Medvedev seriously. Oh. And um, this was, you know, I know it's 12, 13 years ago now, but it's very vivid to me. And the, she produced this big button called Perigrushka, which could have been actually been Perizagrushka, but no one in the State Department seems to speak Russian these days. <laughs> and uh, they um, said it's a reset and we're going to put the difficulties of the past behind us and never mind about Estonia, never mind about um, you know, all these other things. And then we had the... Um, Yeah, and, and it didn't work very well. They tried hard to have these new dialogue, but in the end, Russia was still menacing its neighbours, mm -hmm. there was still organised crime, there was still cyber attacks, there was still very aggressive espionage, there was still... Um, and and, and yeah, they, if you look through the eight years of Obama, it finished up with Ukraine mm -hmm. yeah, in 2014. And yeah, that was six years in, I suppose, in the seizure of Crimea. And by the end, the... Obama administration realized that actually the East Europeans were right and that Russia's quite a, quite a serious problem. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's like the most expensive geopolitical education in history and it's at the expense of other people. But uh, I uh, I remember that uh, one time I read about like, uh, how, like dealing about China, like dealing with China. Um, always the West has thought that maybe now in the front line there are Eastern European countries like dealing with China. Like it has never happened before, you know. Like with Russia, uh, we always like uh, they they now see that okay, Eastern European countries are in danger. But right now, dealing with China, actually, uh, as it has been like um, we have seen now, um, the Eastern European countries aren't like maybe in like the most interesting thing for the China. China thinks that okay, like um, uh, Eastern European Europe, Europe is like not that important. But uh, what where the, like the strategic importance lies when China tries maybe do something like take over something maybe economically? Um, well, I think the the Chinese involvement in Eastern Europe is well worth studying, but it's mm -hmm. mainly worth studying for what it doesn't show, for what, than what it does show. Mm -hmm. First of all, China sucks at multilateralism. And the 17 plus one basically doesn't work. Yeah. They have very limited knowledge of these countries and they have good experts at a sort of desk officer level and good ambassadors. But the, mm -hmm. you know, for, for, you know, at the sort of decision-making level, they find it very hard to focus on, on countries that they think are so small it's hard to know where they are on the map. Um, the Chinese investment is basically trivial. Um, you know, a failed road project in Poland, a, um, a few smokestack projects in um, ex-Yugoslavia, a railway that hasn't been built yet. Mm. Um, and the GDP of these countries combined is not that enough really to matter. And I've heard it said quite convincingly to me that China would trade the whole of Eastern Europe for better relations with Nord Rhine-Westphalia. One, ger one big German mm -hmm. land or Bavaria in, in terms of what they really mind about real mm -hmm. exports this is, not a, this is not a big thing and there's no technology that's particularly interesting mm -hmm. for them to come and steal or to, um, and there's no real investment in China from these countries, it's not a substantial relationship um, what they like is the idea of divide and rule That if the, if the point is to make sure the EU doesn't have a common stance on say mm -hmm. 
um, Uyghurs or Tibet or Hong Kong. And to some extent that succeeded. They've had the Hungarians and sometimes the Greeks vetoing common EU positions. So that was probably worth it from their point of view. Uh, what's interesting to me is the lack of competitive friction with Russia. We see China in Central Asia, mm-hmm. perhaps rather more substantially than in, in Eastern Europe. And we see China in the Western Balkans and in Serbia and in Belarus. And these are traditional Russian places, what Russia would regard as the backyard, whether the locals mm-hmm. regard as the backyard is another question. It, and we really studied at SEPA the any sign <coughs> of Russian discontent, complaint, aggravation mm-hmm. about this. And we didn't find any. The Russians have decided we're not going to quarrel with the Chinese. They're going to do their stuff, we're going to do ours. Sometimes our interests are going to um, a clash, but in the end, it's we, we both have an interest in squeezing the West out of these places. And so for them, that the West is now out of Central Asia is a much bigger plus than the minus of having to argue a little bit about who gets what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think to wrap it all up, uh, I would like to quickly move on to Estonia. Yes. Uh, My you... favourite subject. <laughs> exactly. Uh, ours as well. You are the first e-resident of Estonia. Um, so how did you find out about the programme? What made you become one? And how has it benefited you? Well, I, I, it was a great honour. I mean, I, was, I have the first visa for Lithuania um, issued in 1990 when the Soviet Union still controlled Lithuania's borders mm-hmm. and I've, I'm very fond of Estonia I've lived there my first son was my eldest son was born there and I um, was have watched with great interest the both the economic and political reforms and the growth of e-government and I'm close friends with many Estonians including your former president Thomas Hendrik Ilves and as I saw e-government develop, I said this digital signature is fantastic and as soon as you make it eligible to um, foreigners, please can I have one and please in fact can I have the first one? And he thought that was a, a far, and I said that would be a far greater honour than getting an Estonian state order. And, um, and, he, was, uh, and he, he was very kind enough to insist that I, I got the first one and so I flew to Estonia I think in 20, um, early 2010 or 2011 for the day and got this uh, um, and I still have it in my pocket um, and unfortunately the uh, the digital encryption didn't work very well because the Germans made a mistake so it actually has to be replaced now but mm-hmm. I've, still, I've still kept this uh, this, this, this souvenir mm-hmm. and um, I have to say it's, uh, Britain is so underdeveloped when they say please can we have a digital signature what they mean is can you please print it out sign it scan it and email it back to us and I often say would you accept an Estonian digital signature and they say what so I've not had any um, mm-hmm. recent occasion to use it but I'm still very proud of it yeah I think it was a very big cultural shock for me as well moving to the UK when everything's on paper there's nothing yeah. digitalized everything goes with post as well like regular mail and what was most interesting for me is that everything gets duplicated in an email as well and in yeah. a physical letter so it was just it felt like a waste of money for me um, yeah. It is also with like a fintech. I'm so used to like with uh, like many many banks in Estonia. I, I can do like in three seconds. I can pay for something, and here yes. it's like put your credit card, put your like debit card. I'm like it it it, it is so much easier in Estonia. So I I, I, know, I know it's terrible. Well, it's it's even worse when you go to the United States. <laughs> I believe that. Uh, I think that the uh, digital base in Estonia is great, but we have a lot to do more, a uh, lot to. Um, figure out. But uh, I think that uh, to wrap it all up then, um, 
lastly, you should suggest maybe that what we Estonians uh, should uh, keep an eye on, like what kind of like foreign politics we should keep an eye on, and what should maybe Estonia do uh, with Russia? Um, well, I think your best. It, it's very important to um, in, increase your security integration with the rest of the region. Mm-hmm. So I'm very pleased that we've had Polish coastal batteries in Estonia. And I think that you know, making sure that Poland understands that the outer perimeter of its own security is the Estonian-Russian border, that's mm-hmm. great. Um, all regional cooperation, also with you know, Finland and Sweden, particularly, I would say, through the Joint Expeditionary Force, is good. I think it's important to accept that NATO may not work in a crisis. NATO is too big, too slow, mm-hmm. too dependent on the United States. It would be great if it works, but I think we have to look... It's. You know, I know there's an argument about this, that any discussion of NATO's potential failings is dangerous, but I think it's much better to work out and do planning and very hard exercises, what happens if. And one of my big worries is that the NATO presence in Estonia doesn't do proper exercises. Mm-hmm. You, know, you see these expensive British killing machines going along main roads during the when school's out and with bicycles mums with dads with push chairs going in between mm-hmm. and the British soldiers say we're meant to be on an exercise we're kind of simulating real war but it's too disruptive to do that so we have to kind of fit in with civilian life and I think you need to do really hard disruptive exercises which show the Russians that you're really serious not just mobilisation which you do mm-hmm. but also saying just imagine and it will be tough you'll have people will be late for work and the schools will be closed there'll be damage to crops and buildings and bridges and roads and so on but you have to practice this mm-hmm. it's really important um i think the resilience national resilience is really important what finland does is great and estonians should do it too in terms of national defense courses elite cohesion public education making mm-hmm. sure everybody knows what happened in a crisis because your best you're never going to have the sort of deterrence that Finland has with its JASM missile or that Britain and France have with nuclear weapons. Um, But what you can have is deterrence by denial, this feeling that Estonia would be such a hard nut to crack. It would be so difficult, so expensive, so dangerous to attack Estonia and so fruitless that really it would be better not to do it. And that's the one thing that's in your power to do, and I recommend you do it. Mm Thank you. I think that the uh, I just talked to an Estonian NATO chairwoman also, and uh, she and the foreign foreign prime minister David Eva said that the Estonian troops would only maybe last for three months. So it, it well while hoping that maybe the NATO troops would come. Uh, so what do you think that if we could last maybe three months, then uh, while NATO is bringing the troops over, can't the, like Russia cut it off? Well, I think that's just one... I mean, one point is that if Russia attacks NATO, NATO attacks Russia mm-hmm. everywhere. So it's, we, I mean, we need to make very clear this isn't just about defending Estonia. Um, it's about defending the whole of NATO and all of NATO and all NATO countries need to think about deterrence and mm-hmm. resilience. Um, but I think that you, it, it's easy to go down a kind of rabbit hole where you think it's going to be 1940 all over again, 1939-40 all over again, and that's a, what just one possibility. Um, so I think that the, 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 key, the key thing is to make sure that you don't get to the stage that the Russians are in there. And that's by making yourself look really, really unattractive. In the end, you know, the geography is geography and size is size. You're a million people, Russia's 140 million. Yeah. Um, but you can make it um, the, you know, there's always going to be fierce dogs out there. You can do an awful lot to make sure that if the dog doesn't decide, if it's going to bite anyone, it's not going to bite you. Mm-hmm.
But okay, thank you, Edward Lucas. I think it has been very insightful, and thank you for our analysis. Well, sure, I did. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Very good. Okay, I've got okay. to run. Mm -hmm. What's the time?